in these days, these days go by fast. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Pick me up in verse 24. I want to say thank you to all those who played a part in inviting me here. Uh, it's been a joy for me to get to know some of you and to share God's word with you, to even uh, poke fun at University of Michigan people, um, all that good stuff. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm going to leave it alone. We know the only real conference in college football is SEC. Everyone else is high school. We get that. We get that. We get that. All right, now that you're ready to receive the word, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, pick me up in verse, verse 24. Paul writes, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly, I don't Box is one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let me just back up, you know, whenever I'm in these environments, I, I, I typically uh, tell people why I'm excited uh, to be in environments like, like this. Uh, for those of you um, who I, I don't say this um, to flatter you, um, we do know the difference between flattery and gossip, right? Gossip is saying something about someone behind their back you would never say to their face. Flattery is the exact opposite. It's saying something to someone's face you would never say behind their back. So I don't, I don't say this at all to, to flatter you, but um, I just feel like I'm paying off a lifetime debt to you those who are in Christian camping. My mother grew up uh, in inner city Philadelphia. She was born in 1950. Uh, whatever your image of the hood, the ghetto, that's what my mom grew up in. In fact, growing up, when my mother got really angry, she would say, boy, don't you know I'm from Philly? Like she had survived Vietnam or something <laughs> like that. Uh, her mother was an alcoholic. Uh, my grandmother was not the chocolate chip cookie baking kind of grandmother. She was just not, not the nicest of people. She, she never hugged my mother, never told my mother she loved her. In fact, she threw her out of a window when my mom was about two years old, second story window, just horrifically abusive. Uh, one day, 1959, my mother's nine years of age. Uh, her mom comes home drunk on a Saturday night and said something to my mom she'd never said before. She says, in the morning, I want you to get up and take your brothers to church. My mom's like, oh, that's weird. So they're in the hood in Philly. Mom gets up. The, oh, she's the oldest of three, uh, actually four. We just found out, and it's just a long story, just found out my mom had a sister through Facebook and all that. Other. Long story short, my grandmother had given birth to a child and um, just kind of gave her up and didn't tell anybody about it. That's a whole nother long story. So my grandmother demands that my mother take her brothers to church the next day. Mom's like, this is weird, don't know where to go. She puts on the best outfit she has, gets her brothers dressed. They go to a, um, an aging, let's just call it what it is, dying church in inner city Philadelphia, Baptist church, pastored by a, by a Ukrainian man. It was an all-white church. So sight for sore eyes, three young black kids come marching in. 
And an older white woman has a conversation with my mom in which she says, has you, have you ever been to camp? And my mom says, no, I've never, I've never been. And she says, well, there's a camp up in the Poconos. You should go. My mom's like, love to go. We don't have money. And this woman's like, I'll pay for it. And so she paid for my mom to go to camp Thursday night of that week at camp. Um, my mom hears the gospel preached, walks the aisles, gives her heart and life to Jesus Christ. And so I really feel like everything I've gotten is because of what you guys do. And these are stories you never hear, um, but you all are impacting generations for a time you will not see. And I just want to encourage you. I know it's oftentimes a thankless job, and you just hear complaints all the time. Christians drive me nuts, man. Complain, complain, complain. But I want you to know you are appreciated and you're valued, and you are sowing seeds into eternity. There's a great book called Nothing Like It in the World. It's a wonderful beach read. It's not a spiritual book. It's written by Stephen Ambrose, and it's about the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. It's regarded by many historians to be the single greatest engineering feat in America in the 19th century. Railroad that just starts from east to west, west to east, comes together. And one of the owners of that project was a guy by the name of Collis Huntington. In fact, if you're ever in Pasadena, you ought to check out Huntington Gardens, named in his honor. Uh, this project was met with great excitement and anticipation. They, they, had, a, they had an inkling of, of the, the possibilities and the potential of this project and how it would revolutionize our nation. And so on the first day when they were going to start building this railroad, they, they decided to do their version of a ribbon-cutting ceremony, what they call the, the, the nailing of the first spike. They went out and they'd gotten a golden spike. They were so excited. They, they, they were just going to kind of kick this thing off, huge adrenaline rush. The problem was one of the owners, Collis Huntington, heard about it and he was not pleased. Immediately, he fired off a telegram, and he had this to say, will you listen? If you want to jubilate over driving the first spike, go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there look too ugly. We may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know about it as we can. <laughs> Hear this. Huntington concludes, anybody can drive the first spike, but there are many months of labor and unrest between the first and last spike. You know what he's saying? Starting well is easy. Anybody can do that. I mean, I was the best husband on the honeymoon. New husbands, new marriages don't impress me. It's those marriages that are decades in. They've just dropped the child off at college. They're sitting down for lunch, and they still have something to say to each other. That's what's impressive. You were the best Christian when you first got saved. You... You knew about maybe a half a Bible verse, but you were sharing your faith with everything moving. 
brand new Christians in their zeal. That doesn't impress me. What impresses me is decades later, that, that still joy for Jesus. That's what moves me. You were the best worker the first day on the job. Great. Drove that first spike well. But to still have that same passion and commitment decades later, that's impressive. Starting well is easy. Anybody can drive the first spike. It's finishing well. Nailing that last spike, that's what really matters. There's a guy, I can say it now, in church history, even though he just died a few years ago, you should really get to know this guy, a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks, famous professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Go online, get his stuff, read his books. It'll nourish your soul. Howard Hendricks, in a pre-Google age, was, was interested. He didn't say it this way, but he wanted to know who in the Bible drove the last spike well and who didn't. Who finished well and who didn't. And again, it's a pre-Google age, so uh, he can't Google this information. So what he does is he reads the Bible from cover to cover, and every time he sees a person's name mentioned in the Scriptures, he just jots it down, and he realizes at the end of his reading in, in Revelation, he understands that there are over 3,000, over 3,000 people mentioned in the Bible. The problem is, though, there's only about enough information on about 100 of those 3,000 plus that allows you to determine who drove the last spike well and who didn't. Of those 100, only 30 finished well. Absent from the list, Moses. He didn't finish well. God told him to speak to the rock, but he got frustrated with the people. We get it. They were grumbling and complaining for, for decades, and that kind of got the best of them in this moment, and he struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock, and he was banned from walking into the promised land. Absent from the list is Solomon. He didn't finish well. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is the challenge. I got a bird's eye view into this early on in my ministry. At the age of 17, I was, um, through a strange set of circumstances I don't have the time to get into, I, I, I acknowledged a call to vocational ministry. Now, I, I grew up in a little, little small um, um, uh, black Baptist church, and the way they rolled at our church was, is if you felt like you were called to preach, uh, you didn't go to a class. You didn't even go off to Bible college right away. You, you went and told your pastor. Uh, and my pastor, he asked me some questions. He, he, he discerned that, that oh, okay, there could be something here. And then they put you up for something called a trial sermon. Now, parenthetically, I once attended a trial sermon of a buddy of mine, and it was horrific. And the pastor got up after him and says, well, there's a reason why they call it a trial sermon. Didn't go so well. We'll try it one more time. If he doesn't get it right, he's done. A lot of pressure. So I, I get up and I preach my trial sermon. It's uh, August of 1990, um, and it was the worst sermon in the history of sermons. Um, but the people were either lying or they were genuinely nice to me or some combination of both. Uh, and for some reason, the pastor says, you know what, we believe that there's something here. A year later, I take off for, for Bible college. After my freshman year in Bible college, I then intern 
um, at a pastor's church. He was a friend of my father's in the Midwest. Had wonderful time there at his church. Spent the summer living at his house. I, I remember during that summer just kind of a lot of fishing trips together. And here I am, this young, budding ministry leader, asking him all kinds of questions. I would sit in his home office as he was preparing the weekly sermon. And I'm, I'm asking him uh, questions. How do you prepare? And what's your approach? And I was just soaking it all in. I went with him on hospital visitations and sat in small groups. It was just an eye-opening experience. I, I was even there for the bad of it. I, I remember uh, one of the, the members came home from college, and she was pregnant out of wedlock, and I witnessed that some of the, the women in the church actually wanted to throw her a baby shower, and I was there the Sunday when the pastor had gotten wind of this, stood up in front of a congregation of about this size and says, no, we, we will not throw a baby shower for her. That's supporting her sin. And then watching her slump in her seat, something just felt off to me. Internship ended, I go back to school. A couple months, months later, I, I get a phone call. It's my father. He says, son, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. He goes, I want you to know the pastor you interned with just got fired from his church for sleeping with several women in the church. That was about 30 years ago. He never confessed publicly, never repented of his sin. Sure enough, his, he and his wife got divorced. He hasn't finished well. I remember taking all that in and just being humbled and just realizing that I'm not beyond disqualification from ministry. And I just kind of resolved in my heart that if God would give me grace, I don't want to be a public success and a private failure. That I want to hear God say of me, well done. You drove that last spike well. What about you? What's going on in your heart? I'm reminded of King Josiah, who is one of the few good kings. What do we see him doing? Going to the high places where the idols were, tearing them down. What high places in your heart have you grown comfortable with? Are you an outward success but an inner failure? Oh, that we would be a people who would drive the last spike well. This is what our text is about. Our text is all about this idea of finishing well or driving the last spike well. Here's the Apostle Paul. And our text is filled with athletic terminology. For example, when Paul uses the word race, it's actually the Greek word stadion, from which we get the English word stadium. When Paul talks in the opening verses of our text about runners and, and running and run, it's the Greek word treko, from which we get the English word track, as part of this idea of racetrack. I mean, our text is filled with athletic terminology. And it makes sense because every other year the Corinthians held their version of the Olympic Games. They called it the Isthmian Games. And they called it the Isthmian Games because Corinth was located on an isthmus, surrounded by water. 
Every other year, people from all over the then-known world would flock to Corinth. It was an athletic town, and so here is Paul. He's pulling on that athletic imagery, and he's equating our lives to the athlete and the athlete who finishes well. He begins by saying, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? He says, but I want you to run in such a way that you may win. Have a sense of zeal. Have a sense of passion about you. The idea of the word run or treco used in this manner, he's not talking about the physical repetitious movement of our feet. He's using it more figuratively of the, of the attitude or the essence of the runner. In, in other words, Paul is saying, go to war with cultural Christianity. Go to war with lukewarmness. Go to war with this spirit that says, it doesn't take all that. Go all out. I just want to tell you that this idea of lukewarmness is so pervasive in our culture and in our environments, I don't even think we realize how pervasive it is. We've reduced following Jesus to to our personal relationship with him, a phrase that's never found in the Bible, and to cultivating nice quiet times. We have wonderful domesticated Christians. You need to understand that that we don't see the idea of a quiet time in the Bible. This idea of I'm going to give God a dedicated 20 minutes or 30 minutes at best to him in, in my day and the other uh, 23 hours and 30 or 40 minutes kind of belongs to me doing whatever it is I want to do. I want to be careful. I'm not being legalistic here. But the person who prays a couple hours a day, the person who cultivates the abiding life in Christ, they're kind of seen as the extreme when the Bible pictures them as the norm. So I want you to understand, friends, Paul is saying the number one thing we bring as leaders, as followers of Jesus Christ to our environment, is a zeal and a passion for Christ. It's the number one thing. It's the number one thing that we bring. It's not our skill set. It's not our ability. It is a passion for Jesus Christ and him alone. He says, I, I, I want you to go all out. I, I grew up playing Pop Warner football. When I was a kid, nothing gave me greater joy than to hit somebody in Jesus' name. Legalized violence. I loved it. Every August of, uh, of every year, uh, my brother and I would beg my father to take us down to Duncan Park uh, there uh, in Fairburn, Georgia, to sign us up for Pop Warner football, man. And uh, Pop Warner football in the South, especially in places like Georgia, it's a big deal. And the registration process was, was pretty uh, elaborate. You'd go from station to station. In one station, they'd see how tall you were. In another station, they'd, you'd step on the scales and they'd see how much you weigh. Like, they didn't want you being like 10 years old, weighing a buck 85, crushing the other kids. And uh, other stations, you had to sign up medical release forms. In the last station, you had to pay the registration fee. Now, you need to understand, some of you have said it to me. You've asked, uh, is my dad Crawford Loritz? Yes, he is. My dad's a wonderful preacher. Um, but you need to understand, he, he, can, um, he can be a bit embarrassing because dad doesn't need one of these to preach from. He'll preach to you anywhere and everywhere. And every single year, with checkbook in hand, what, right when it's time to write the check for the registration fee, dad would preach to me and my brother a little, a little sermon in front of all these other little kids 
kids, and he didn't use his inside voice. He, he used his outside voice. He would say, uh, sons, you need to understand your mother and I don't make a whole lot of money. We're with a nonprofit Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now they call it Crew. Um, and as such, we raise money for our support. Uh, because of that, this registration fee is pretty steep, but we are more than happy to pay it. But we want to make sure we are investing our money well. And because of that, you need to understand two things and two things only, sons. If I pay, you stay. In other words, sons, I'm not trying to hear midway through the season that the boys hit too hard, the weather's too hot, the coach is too mean. No, no, no. If I pay, you stay. And then one year, to solidify his point, he took out, took us back home, took out the Loritz Family Dictionary, flipped to the Q section, took out a pair of scissors, and literally cut out the word quit. He would love to remind us the word quit doesn't even exist in my house. <laughs> now, his second point was a bit more problematic. I've been in therapy over it for years. <laughs> he says, secondly, sons, if I pay, you stay and you play. In other words, sons, God has invested in you certain athletic abilities that do not warrant you sitting on the bench. In other words, sons, I'm not trying to take time out of my busy schedule watching you do what I'm doing, and that's watching the other little boys play. <laughs> pray for me, y'all. In short, he's saying, I have an expectation. that you'll give it your all. You know, there's a misunderstanding about salvation, friends. Our misunderstanding is, many of us, we won't say it this way, but we think this, that salvation is cheap. Salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. Just because it didn't cost you something doesn't mean it didn't cost someone something. For more on this, you should read Lee Strobel's wonderful book. It's a classic, The Case for Christ. He interviews a medical doctor who's an expert in crucifixion. In fact, do you know the word excruciating comes from the Latin ex out of cruciatus, cross? It literally means out of the cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of pain and suffering, they went to the cross. When a person was crucified, nails were nailed in their not their hands, literally, but, but their wrists would strike a nerve, causing the hands to draw up like this and long nails nailed in their feet. They would be hoisted up by a couple centurions and dropped into a post, and upon being dropped into a post, all of their joints would become dislocated. Their lungs would begin to fill up with mucus, and they'd have to push up to get air. In fact, eyewitnesses to crucifixion all are agreed that the, the, the main thing sensory-wise that you got from witnessing a crucifixion was the, the labored breathing and sounds. <gasps> you know the average length of time it took a person to die the death of crucifixion? Not two or three minutes. Not two or three hours. The average length of time it took someone to die the death of crucifixion two or three days. But if you had a nice centurion, he would take his club and would break your legs so you could no longer push up to get air. And we call that nice because that actually expedited the process. And we can't give God 30 minutes of prayer. I believe Jesus Christ is saying the same thing my father said. Because I've paid, you stay. 
Don't come talking midway through the marriage, midway through the calling. That is too hard. The word quit should not be in your vocabulary. Not only do we stay, we play. We don't settle for C, C minus cultural Christianity, a lukewarmness. We're all out. Because at any given moment, God can say, give me back my breath. So what does it look like to be all out? 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 make up a section of the book of 1 Corinthians. In this section, Paul is dealing with the problem of food among the Corinthians. Remember, it's a multi-ethnic church. It's made up of Greeks and Jews. In a multi-ethnic church, food becomes an issue. When the Greek family invites the Jewish family over for dinner after church and the Jewish family sits down to a rack of ribs, Houston, we have a problem. What's Paul's message? Lay down your rights. Lay down your rights. Now in chapter 9, he uses himself as an example of laying down his rights. You know what he says, and this is a good word for us in vocational ministry. He says, I have the right to demand full payment from you. I'm sowing the gospel into you. I have the right to charge you. You should pay me well. But I lay down that right, and I make tents. Because my bottom line is the gospel. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. Now, what is he saying here? Is he saying that everybody in vocational ministry shouldn't take a salary? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't lose sight of the big picture. And the big picture is seeing people come to know Jesus. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. Even money. Paul is saying, I'm so all in on the gospel that if you've got to reduce me to part-time and then I got to go get another job to subsidize the income so that now people can come to faith in Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. Is that your mentality? Or is ministry a gig for you? What are you in this for? Are you in this to see future Karen Loritz's, my mama, come to faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, is that really in your heart? Or is there a sense in which, man, if I'm not in a position to buy my own house by next year, I'm done? You're not taking the house with you. What's your motive? Then in verse 25, what does it take to be a last spike Christian? We're all in. Now verse 25, the very un-American portion of the message. He says, and any athlete, any athlete, any athlete who competes in the games, don't miss it. He's using an analogy, and he's referring to us as athletes. Hear it. Paul is writing in Greek. You know what the Greek word for athlete is? Listen carefully. Agonizomai. 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 It's from the 
Greek word agonizomai, translated as athlete, that we get the English word agony or agonize. Paul is helping us to see something. To be an athlete means you will suffer. I'm looking at Jaden, he's coming back, man. I sit in his practices from time to time, suffering, suicides. Like no one is like, bring on the suicides. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, all out. My son's had, had injuries. Dealt with a bone bruise and sprained ACLs and any athlete, you stick in it long enough, it's, it's suffering. Now, I was sitting with a group of NFL players, I was telling some of you the other day, NFL players the other day, and I'm looking at these big guys with, with small plates at this conference, I'm like, man, what's up with the small plate? And as well, part of my contract is, at the end of every season, they tell me how much I got away when I come back, and for every pound that I'm overweight, this one guy said, I'm fined $750 per pound, I'm overweight per day. Suffering. Ah, you're making millions of dollars, so maybe that's a bad example. (laughs) But any athlete is going to get injured. There's going to be pain. Here's what he's saying. That's the analogy he uses for following Jesus. You're going to go through some things. You're going to go through it. And I think the reason why so many Christians are thrown by it is because we operate from the default assumption that God exists to make me happy. No, he doesn't. We live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, you're going to experience agonizomai. Keep living, and you will get a bad doctor's report one day. Some of you in this room have dealt with the death of kids. All of us know what it's like to go through painful seasons at times in our marriage. Just welcome to to what it means to live in this world. And in the middle of all that, we have to lead. We have to show up. Agonizomai. Paul dealt with this. One of my favorite passages by Paul is when he writes these words. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
As if that's not enough, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Oh, I want that kind of resiliency. One of my concerns for millennials and Gen Z, a lack of toughness. It's lack of resiliency. I mean, we get, it. We get the slightest spiritual hangnail. We're done. Persecution is what we're called to. Why? Because God entrusts us with suffering, not just for our own sanctification, but for his glory. God is looking for people who will say, I am not following you for the benefits package. So whatever happens, I'm ride or die. I've been through it. I've been through the ringer even recently. Fall of 2019, I was pastoring in the Bay Area, and there's this pastor there, Gary Gadini. This guy, he's got like, you ever know people who just, they have like a direct line to God. I'm being, I'm being a bit facetious here, but that person walks with God. Or as my grandmama used to say, they got the ghost. <laughs> That's Gary. Gary reaches out to me and goes, man, I just can't get you off my mind. I've had this vision of Jesus interceding on your behalf because Satan was going to come after you. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> A couple weeks later, I'm out on the golf course. I just made the turn from number nine to number 10. I had a great nine. I think I was like four or five over, which is great for me on the opening nine. That doggone David Platt, who I wouldn't call a friend of mine, he's like a green room buddy of mine. David Platt texts me, he goes, man, I can't get you out of my mind. You're about to go through some things. When David Platt tells you that, A couple days later, my father, one of the godliest, the godliest man that I know, says, man, I was praying for you the other day. God wants me to give you Psalm 91. A couple days later, one of my best friends who lives in Columbia, Maryland, doesn't know my dad, says, man, I've been thinking about you, Psalm 91. A couple days later, another guy who doesn't know these other two guys says, man, God's put Psalm 91 in my heart for you. At this point, I'm like, I should probably read Psalm 91. <laughs> By the way, if you don't believe in an unseen realm, you don't really believe the scriptures. I read Psalm 91, it's all about the enemy attacking and God's protection. We went through it. A couple weeks after all of that, the other shoe dropped. I don't know I don't know if this is blasphemy or sacrilegious, but I took Paul's words that I just read and I tweaked them. 
to fit my experience. Here's what I wrote. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors. My wife and I have experienced a miscarriage. We've gone through seasons where our kids made horrible choices. I've been misunderstood constantly by blacks being called a traitor and an Uncle Tom, misunderstood by whites who walked out on me mid-sermon every time I preached on race. I've been attacked in the media, betrayed by elders, had cancer scares, watched a once thriving church I poured my heart into dwindle to a shell of itself. I've had an engine go out on an airplane I was in while on my way to preach the gospel. I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety and have felt overwhelming loneliness in my labors. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Agonizomai. Agonizomai. We all go through it. Last spike people are resilient people. And the resiliency they have isn't a manufactured resilience. It's resilience that comes from leaning into the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in that struggle that strength is produced. I got to tell you now, my ministry is the sweetest it's ever been. Because people have seen me suffer. And there's just an anointing that comes that you only get so far with giftedness. Gifted people are a dime a dozen. But those who've been in the fire and didn't cave and trusted Christ and who had the audacity to say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you can throw me in and I might not get delivered. But even if I'm not delivered, I'm not gonna bow. Is that you? I want to pray. I had a third point, and for you type A people, third point's integrity. Second point's endurance. First point is excellence. You good? <laughs> if you're here... And you're saying, Brian, I, 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 just, I just want some prayer. Because I'm going through some agonizomai right now. 
just tough. I'm not going to ask you what's tough. But you're in the middle of, man, it's just hard. You just want some prayer for strength. Would you stand to your feet? I'd love to pray for you. That's you. I'm going through the tough right now. Yeah. Yeah. Prayer is it's a team sport. So I want to encourage you, if you're sitting down next to someone who's standing, you have freedom to stand with them if you want, to stretch a hand towards them. Would you pray with me? Because guess what? At some point, it, you're going to stand. Tough comes to all of us at some point. Let us pray. Father, for my brothers and sisters who are standing, because they're acknowledging this is a challenging season. It's hard. As my grandmother used to say, we don't live in heaven and board down here live in a very real world that's marred and marked by sin. In this life, the Bible says, we will have trouble. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who, who are standing for various reasons that I don't even want to guess. I pray several things for them. Number one, I pray what the psalmist just said in Psalm 8, who is man that you are mindful of him. God, I pray that they would know that you know. This is exactly what you were declaring to Moses in the burning bush where you say, hey Moses, I've, I, I've seen what's going on with my people Israel. I've heard their cries. I know. Jesus, you yourself said not a single sparrow falls to the ground and you don't, you don't know about it. God, you know. So we attack the lives of the enemy who would seek to whisper in our ears that, that God is some aloof, oblivious God who clearly doesn't know what's happening. God, who you are is omniscient. You are the all-knowing God. You know. But God, I, I love what the psalmist then says in Psalm 8, right on the heels of saying that you're mindful, that you know. He goes, or the son of man, that you care for him. Yeah. God, you care. God, you care. You care about cancer. You care about the relational difficulty. You care about what's going on in the marriage. You care about the loneliness care about the health crisis, you care about the finances, you, you care about the job, you, you care, you care, you care. God cares. So we come against the enemy who would seek also to whisper in our ears that you don't care. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God, you, you care. In fact, would you just say that right now? God cares. Say it again. God cares. God, you see, and God, you care. 
And so, so now, Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote you, not a prosperity preacher or teacher, not a well-known teacher of the word of God. I'm, I'm going to quote you, Jesus. Here's what you said, Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. That's what we're going to do, Lord God. Right now, we're just going to do it. God, cure the cancer. God, step in and heal our body of the infirmity. God, bring healing to the marriage. God, surround with com community and, and just evict loneliness. God, step in. God, fix the situation. Hear the cries of our hearts. But in the meantime, in between God, time, God, give us the strength to stand. Give us the strength to endure. Give us the strength, Lord God, to turn our suffering into a stage that brings you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.